Alright, we're gonna have to get started. Make your way in, find a spot, get uncomfortable. Yeah. That's what I've been It's the only way this one's gonna roll today, I think. Roll tide. So this reminds me, uh, actually, this reminds me of uh, when Jesus is teaching at this house one time, and man, there's people in the back that can't even get in. It's pretty neat, man. Uh, but they were so eager, one of them decided to cut a hole in the roof so he could just see Jesus. So I don't know. I don't know if we got that going on, but this is pretty cool. All right, I want to show you a video because... Um, I'm a big superhero fan. Who's seen the Avengers movie? All right. So I love superheroes. And I just want y'all to know that Jesus is my superhero. And um, he saves the day. So let's let's watch this together and then we'll we'll discuss. You need men in these buildings. There are people inside and they're gonna be running right into the line of fire. You take them to the basement or through the subway, you keep them off the streets. I need a perimeter as far back as 39. Why the hell should I take orders from you? I need men in those buildings. Leave the people down and away from the street. I'm going to set up a all the way down to 39th Street. All right. Street. Yay for the Avengers. Yes. All right. So... When I think about Jesus, and I think about our topic for today, I thought about that video, you know, he comes in, he steps in, he, he gives orders to the cop, he gives instructions to them, and they're like, why should we listen to you? And then he shows them, right? And suddenly their mind has changed. And so I wonder this, I wonder today, as we think about hearing instructions from Jesus, do we ask the question, why should we listen to him? Or why should we listen to an old, outdated book that was written before we were ever twinkles in our daddy's eye? You know, isn't that just old stories or ancient texts that were written by all these men and all, you know, a long time ago and now we're in today and things have changed. We've become so enlightened and so much smarter and figured so many things out. Isn't that book outdated? What does Jesus really have to say to me today? And I want to tell you guys, Jesus died and three days later rose from the dead. And it, that's what gives him credibility to speak to us today about any and everything that we may face in life. I mean, he puts this superhero that we just watched to shame. He says, look, I am trustworthy. You can listen to me. We're going to talk about some tough stuff, man, today. As you think about relationships with those that are still in the dark, Children of light interacting with children of darkness. And how is that supposed to work? That's what we're talking about today. How do we interact as Christians with those that are not yet in Christ? How do we interact with them? And so I want to start by, um, y'all have always seen, all seen this, right? Y'all know what this is, right? This is the church, this is the steeple. Y'all seen that little <laughs> bad theology? <laughs> so I want to teach it to you a different way. So this is the church, this is the steeple, open it up, where's all the people? Across the street, in the bar, open it up, there they are. We have a problem, right? More and more of the world are getting less and less interested in the church, in Jesus, in the Bible, and, and the things that we know are critical 
to even understanding life or really truly living life. People are disappearing. And so it's really important that we understand how do we interact with those that are not a part of the church yet? How do we interact with those and make sure we're telling them, make sure we're bringing them in to the kingdom of God? And so we want to talk about that today. I want to start with a football play. Can you see this? I'm sorry that you can't see this very well, but this is an Auburn football player that's from the state of Alabama. This was in 2011 when they played in the national championship game. I'm an Alabama fan, roll tide all the way, but this, I think, teaches what I want to communicate um, pretty well. This happens to be the most reviewed play I've ever seen in my history of watching college football. You know, they've got instant replay, and you can watch it from any and every angle. And I did not know how many cameras they had aimed at these football plays until this play came up. And what it was is this man ends up rolling all over this defender, and he gets up and he continues to run. And it was a big, pivotal moment in the game, game-changing kind of play. And they had to determine, is he down here or Was he not down and he could continue to run? And so what was at stake is whether or not his wrist touched the ground. Now, your hand can touch the ground and you're not down, but if you just tweak it like that and you get your forearm or your wrist, you're down and you can't keep running. And I'm not kidding, man. All the angles were showed. They took 30 minutes out of this game to examine this play. The refs were looking at it. The, the commentators were showing you know, the television audience all the different angles. I've got my special remote where I can zoom in, and I'm like doing my own tweaking, and I'm turning sideways, and I'm arguing with the people in my house about the play, you know, and all this kind of stuff. And it just occurred to me, how many people are examining this very trivial event in, in mankind's history, right? When you think about a football game, albeit it's the national championship game, but when you think about it in the context of eternity, how important is that? That's not going to matter. When judgment day comes, that is irrelevant. It doesn't matter, right? And yet, how many millions of Americans, and in fact, worldwide, were probably watching this game and closely examining that little football play. And it made me think about 1 Timothy 4.16. And this is where Paul says, watch something very closely. What? Your life and your doctrine. And you know, some of us do better at watching our lives and some of us do better at watching our doctrine. Some of us don't watch it at all. Right? Some of us think doctrine has become a bad word. You know, we want to reach into the dark and reach people. So in order to do that, we need to back off of our doctrine or water certain things down to make it more palatable for those that are listening to us. We've done that, right? You know, we, we want to back away from truth so as not to offend someone. And so our doctrine gets watered down or marginalized. But you know, I think we're pretty good at doctrine, a lot of us. I think we know the truth, and we know the truth that needs to be presented to the lost. Our trouble is the other end of that, and that's our life. I think we're heavy on doctrine. We tend to be heavy on doctrine. we got all the right answers. The church has prided itself in that for a long time. 
the churches of Christ. We know the right way. And the rest of you don't. And, and man, we go and we create debates with other people and we've got the best arguments and we can destroy people. I've even watched young groups of people watch a debate where the Christian just demolishes the, the Darwinist or the evolutionist and they're just like, man, he really gave it to them. I was watching God's Not Dead part two recently with my family. Well, I love the movie, okay? But what was really sad to me and, and kind of funny is in the middle of the movie, like when Lee Strobel takes the stand and they're interviewing Lee Strobel and they prove the historicity of Jesus on the stand in the courtroom and then the, the, the atheistic lawyer is just stopped in his tracks. You could hear this Christian family up in the background in the theater just going, you know, he put it to him. And my kids kept looking at me in, you know, in response to what they were hearing that family up there doing. They're like, Dad, what is wrong with them? <laughs> you know? And I said, they're just really proud that someone agrees with them. You know, it's, I think we've been prideful about having all the right answers. And that can be to the detriment of us reaching into the dark and being a friend to those in the dark. In Romans chapter 2, verses 17 through 24, you see Paul saying, you who call yourself a teacher, you who say that you're a guide for the blind, do you teach yourself? You who say, you know, that God, you know, abhors the robbing of temples, do you rob temples? You who say God hates the adulterer, do you commit adultery? So he's talking to these guys and he's addressing the idea of hypocrisy. Those that have the right doctrine who say we know the truth and they preach it and they preach it well and they've got the best arguments. But he says, does your life match that? So I want to challenge us, man. We got the right answers, but do we have the life that matches it? You know, in any discussion, well, let me, let me bring up a quote here of, of Gandhi. He says, you know, I like your Christ. I don't like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. And isn't that a problem that we face? What's the number one reason that the, those in the dark say, I don't want to come to the light? Hypocrisy. I don't want to be a part of that church. Just full of a bunch of hypocrites. Now, what we're quick to do is we want to justify it, right? But look, this, this old guy... Uh, John Chrysostom, he lived a long time ago, but it seems like he was writing about today. Look what he said. How can outsiders admire Christianity? We admire wealth equally with them and even more. We have the same horror of death, the same dread of poverty, the same impatience of disease. We are equally fond of glory and rule. We harass ourselves to death from our love of money. How then can they believe? And think about it. There's some areas there that we're all the same in, right? The church is really it doesn't stand out very much from the rest of the world in a lot of areas. Think about divorce. The church is just really superior in that field, aren't they? No. It's pitiful. Those that know God are not behaving as though they do. No different. So how are they going to believe if our life, if we're not watching it closely? We'll watch a football play, but are we watching 
our lives closely, our doctrine closely, persevering in them, because if we do, we'll save both ourselves and our hearers. That's what Paul says to Timothy. But you know, we want to quickly justify it and say, well, no, it must be on them. It must be on the outsiders that are just misjudging things or whatever. And so we love these passages where Jesus says, look, it says the world is going to hate you. We're just destined to be hated. And, and, and Jesus says that. He says, look, the servant is not greater than the master. If they hated me, they're going to hate you if you follow me. And that's all true. But what it doesn't say, guys, it says that we'll be hated by some, not by all. And we need to be very careful that the world, if they're going to hate us, it needs to be because of Jesus, not because we've inserted ourselves into the equation and they're really put off by us. If they're going to be put off, let them be put off by the words of God said in love and in creative ways because you desperately want them to get it. You're not interested in destroying their arguments. You're interested in them getting it. This passage has been in every class or study I've ever heard in my life when it was a class to Christians on how to interact with the world or those in the dark. It's in 1 Peter 3, verse 15. It says, always be prepared. You've heard this, right? Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. You know what always gets left out in those same classes? Verse 16. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christianity will be ashamed of their slander. See, we want to be prepared to give an answer. But the instruction in the same breath is with gentleness and respect in the face of malicious talk. Don't get defensive. Right? Don't be threatened. Why are you threatened? You know, we are people that are so easily offended. I'm offended. I'm offended. What? Why? Why are we so easily offended? Why are we so threatened by the things the world is saying? It's probably because we're not so convinced as we might like to think ourselves to be of the truth that we contend for. So man, we hear an argument that the atheist makes and they're like, and he's sort of making a point. Hey, wait a minute. And then we lash out. We got to be convinced that man, Jesus is the superhero of all superheroes. He rose from the dead after three days of death so we can trust him. It's relevant today. The words of the Bible are relevant today. We can be confident in the stand that we've taken for the gospel. We don't have to be threatened. When we get into this, we see the Jesus fish all over the backs of Christian vehicles. Maybe some of you have this, or it's on our t-shirts or whatever. But then, see, the problem is, in comes the walking fish with Darwin in it. And you know what our answer to that is? The answer to the darkness? We come up with a truth fish that eats the Darwin fish, and we put that on the back of our vehicle. (laughs) See, we would rather put things on the back of our vehicle than get involved in someone's life 
and really get down and dirty and deal with the malicious talk that they might say, deal with them making fun of our beliefs, all those kind of things, and love them and walk beside them and help them through their bad thinking. Not in an insulting way or a condescending way, but in a loving way. You see, this leads to nothing but more garbage. And I think that's the cutest one of all of them. So I think they win the bumper sticker contest. But they don't win the real contest. It's a T-Rex eating the truth fish that ate the Darwin fish. Anyway, it never ends. And neither will arguments. Have you ever seen someone debate, like the atheist and the Christian debate, and at the end of it, someone is won over to the other side? It doesn't work. You know what works? Love. Love and truth. Grace and truth. James presents us a problem, though. It seems like I'm telling you we need to come alongside these guys and be friends, right? But then you got James that just complicates stuff. What does he say? James 4.4, you adulterous people. See, when you went through the Ten Commandments and you're like, I'm guilty of that, 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 did you skip over adultery because you weren't married? Guess what? You cheated on God, so you're guilty of that one too. Right? He's a jealous God, man. He wants you and you alone to be His and Him to be yours. And man, he says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity or hatred toward God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. And so James steps in and complicates this whole equation for us. He says, we can't be friends with those in the dark? That's what the class is told. <laughs> friends into the dark. Why can't I be friends with the dark? In fact, he doesn't just say you can't be friends. He says, if you do, you hate God. Well, whoa, I don't want to do that. What is James talking about? How does all this fit together? The only answer I know is we have to take a look at the life of Jesus. The one we claim to be disciples of, that means we're trying to become just like Him. We need to take a look at His life. So really quickly, I'm going through this stuff fast, man, because I know I'm not going to finish on time. And someone's going to kick me out of here before I'm done. So I'm going really fast. You can talk to me afterwards, okay? You can throw tomatoes later. All right. But I want you to think about Jesus' example, all right? It says, then Jesus said to his host, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends. Wait, do I need to read that again? Is that really what it says? Who do you invite first when you have a party? Friends. He says, don't invite your friends. Don't invite your brothers, your sisters, your relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they might invite you back. That sounds like a terrible thing, doesn't it? <laughs> Jesus thinks that's terrible. They might invite you back. Oh, no. <laughs> you know? But Jesus' perspective is different than ours, man. And if it sounds crazy and Jesus said it, Jesus is not the crazy one we are. We've got to turn it around. Well, listen. He says, uh, you'll be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed. Although they can't repay you, you'll be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. This is Jesus' perspective. He wants to invite the people that are not his friends, the people that are in the dark. In fact, that's the very reason that he came. He was criticized over and over again for eating and hanging out with sinners. And what is his reply? It's not the righteous that need a doctor, right? 
It's those that are lost. The sick need a doctor. I'm coming to the lost, the sick ones that don't know God. They criticized John the Baptist. They criticized Jesus. Look at this. It says, For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you said, He has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say, He's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by all her children. See, Jesus faced flack for being around people who did not know God, care about God. Everyone else detested these folks. Jesus said, I want to spend time with them. But we would rather spend time in our cliques, people that think the same as us. That's why our churches look like they do. They're full of people who think the same things. And that's more comfortable. Because the minute you start inviting outsiders in who don't know how things are supposed to work, they hadn't learned the rules, then suddenly I'm offended. And guys, what Robert said the other night is so true, and I don't know if you really heard him or not, but when he said, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains a single seed. What was he saying? we got to get over ourselves. If you want to grow you got to stop being so offended. you got to stop just being concerned about being comfortable. And you got to be willing to get outside of yourselves and die for the sake of others. we got to get over ourselves. Look at these examples. I, I know it's hard to read, so I'm going to read them to you. But from the jump, Genesis 1, what did Jesus fundamentally do? He came to the darkness. Right? He left glory and came here to take on flesh and pain and suffering and ultimately die fundamentally he went on their turf right came to where they were in their mess we need to be doing the same thing if we call ourselves his disciples look at the story of the water to wine the cleansing of the temple i could do a whole sermon on all of these why did he cleanse the temple it wasn't because they offended him it was because they offended his father. He says, zeal for your house, father, has consumed me. I'm upset because they're misusing your house. When we get upset, it's because we were misused or we were mistreated, right? We've got to get over ourselves. John 3, Nicodemus, the woman at the well, you see him interacting with all these people that he shouldn't have been interacting with, right? The woman at the well, you shouldn't be hanging out with her. She's a woman and a Samaritan. It's a double no-no. John 8, the sinful woman, while everybody else looks at her and labels her and says she needs to be stoned and they had every right to do so by the law. Jesus has a different perspective. He says, go and sin no more. After they had all dropped their rocks and went home, he says, neither do I condemn you, but go and sin no more. Did he water down the truth? Did he not tell her that she needed to change? No, he did all of that, but he did it differently than the rest of the crowd. He showed love and compassion. John 13, he washes his disciples' feet. One of those feet is Judas. If you read the text, the whole story, you realize he already knew. When he squatted down, took, out his, took off his outer garment and made himself look like a servant, and he was making himself a servant, right? But he washed his betrayer's feet already knowing that he was going to betray him. I wonder, 
I want, I'm going to, you know, we're going to have a lot of time in eternity. I got a lot of questions. One of them is, how did it, how did you rub his feet? Were you like, all right, you know, (laughs) or were you showing extra care and looking him deep in his eyes? That's kind of what I imagine. I imagine it being awkward for Judas, so awkward, so troubling inside, but Jesus was right down there washing nasty betrayers feet. In John 18, when he's arrested, Peter's like, oh no, you don't. And he tries to take the guy's head off. He only gets his ear. Jesus says, put your sword away. And he heals Malchus's ear. Jesus had a different take on how to interact with the lost. The demon-possessed man, one of my favorite stories in all of Scripture. If you read that story closely, you're going to see that they were just came out of a storm. I mean, they're all terrified for their lives. And then they land on shore. And the next thing that happens is naked Willie comes running at them. You read all the accounts, he was naked. He was naked. And he cut himself night and day, hollering. He was crazy. He had a legion of demons, and it was like 6,000 demons. If you read the story, only Jesus got off the boat. I wonder why. (laughs) And this guy is running at him and shouting at the top of his voice. And Jesus didn't run away or get in the boats. I mean, this guy's lost his mind. The first question out of Jesus' mouth of this crazy guy, he didn't say, I'm offended. What's wrong with you? Why are you behaving this way? You can't do that. That's not appropriate. He looks at him and says, what's your name? That's the first question out of Jesus' mouth. I would not want to know that crazy man's name. I want to find safety. I want to think about me and my comfort, but Jesus says, I want to know this guy's name. Everybody else wants to stick him off in the tombs and never deal with him. Keep him away from my children. Keep me safe. Shelter me from this guy. We can't do anything with him. We can't even bind him. But Jesus says, I want to know his name. And at the end of the story, he's dressed in his right mind and he goes and wins over ten cities, the Decapolis. Because Jesus treated him differently than anybody else. Luke 18, the rich young ruler, you got Zacchaeus. Man, nobody wanted to hang out with Zacchaeus. He's a cheating tax collector. And Jesus says, can I come to your house? He doesn't have to be told anything. Zacchaeus voluntarily says, I'm going to give back all that I've taken from people and even more. He wasn't told to do that. He came up with that from his own. Just from the interaction of Jesus loving him enough to say, I want to come to your house. He got criticized for it though. And then in Matthew 23, you see him interacting. And it's not just always lovey-dovey Jesus. I mean, he's clearing temples and in Matthew 23, he gets in the religious people's face because they didn't know God either. They thought they did. And that's why he got in their face. People who think they're okay need a little bit different interaction from us. They need us to get in their face. Say, you think you're good, but you're not. He tells them, man, y'all are whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. You look good on the outside. On the inside, you stink. He gets in their face, says, you're making people twice the sons of hell as you are. See, we don't want to have those conversations, do we? We like the first part of what we're talking about, be their friend and all this kind of... But man, what about the tough conversations we need to have in the dark? That's being a friend to the dark too. You're not loving anybody by holding the truth back and not telling them what they need to hear. That's not love. 
Jesus did all of this because of his perspective. He saw crowds of people differently than we do. When I see crowds of people, I'm like picking out the people. Look at the purple hair. Look at the oh, and look at the crowd. They're in my way. I can't get where I'm trying to go. They're in my way. That's the way we see crowds. Jesus saw them and says he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He saw them and their jacked up behavior as being a result of having no leader. No shepherd. Do you like being shepherded by Jesus? Man, it's nice to have him as the shepherd. It's not always fun or comfortable, but it's really nice to know that he's leading me. And I want everyone to be led by him. Jesus says, I've come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. That's the goal. We don't want anybody to stay in darkness, right? Here's here's sort of the key. Ephesians 5 verse 11 says, have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. This is how you interact in the dark. This is how you start reconciling what James said about not being a friend of the world. See, what James meant by being a friend of the world was doing the things the world does and coming alongside them and and doing the same things. He says, have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, It's your job as a child of light to expose them, to show them for what they are, to show them that there's something better. To show them, man, they're in prison. They don't know they're in prison. You know, prisoners who are in prison for long enough, when they first get in there and the doors clank shut and they see those bars, the bars are like everything. Oh, I'm behind bars. But a long enough time spent behind those bars and you stop seeing the bars. You don't even know. You're there and it's just normal. It becomes normal. It's our job to say, guys, you're in prison. Expose the reality to them so that they can see. In 2 Corinthians 6, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20, Paul says, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making His appeal through us. Now, we cannot lose this perspective. This is where we mess up. We start becoming friends with people that are in the dark in order to win them, but we forget that we're the ambassador and they're the lost one, and suddenly they start becoming the friend and more like the friend that James is talking about, and suddenly we're not the influencer, the ambassador, but we're the influenced. That's where we have to be careful. I need a chair. Here, stand up, buddy. You're going to help me. Now... If I'm the Christian, I'm going to stand on this again. This time it's going to go better than it did in the beginning of the class. But if I'm the Christian and I'm standing up here high with God, I'm I'm where I'm supposed to be. He's down in the pit. He's not a Christian. I'm sorry. And hold that for me. He's not a Christian, but I want him to be. So what I do is I, I link up with him. I love you. You know, I care for you. I start telling them the truth and stuff. He resists. I'm like, I want him up here in the chair with me, but he resists. Resist. <laughs> all right, he's resisting, all right? And But I really want him up there. Come on, you're getting up here. And look how hard it is. It's going to take up. This dude's huge. <laughs> Remember that. <laughs> but I want you to shut now. Now, I am certain that I'm going to stay in the light, and I've convinced myself I can, I'm strong enough. I'm strong enough to go into the dark and rescue people. And I want you to illustrate for us how easy it would. Don't kill me. 
But how easy it would be for you to pull me down instead of the other way, me pulling you up. Now, I don't want to go down. I don't want to show up. <laughs> it's very easy. It's not, in fact, if he was the big guy, the big strong guy was up there, I, would, I, would, I could do it with two fingers. I could pull him down off the chair, off his high stand. <laughs> I would say, give him a hand. All right. So, the point is, we need to go into the dark and we need to rescue people, but we need to be careful. Because as soon as we lock up with them in an effort to get them up, it's so easy to get pulled down to where they are and become the influenced instead of the ambassador. It's easy. You know, Martin Luther King Jr. said, to ignore evil is to become an accomplice to it. We can't ignore it. We have to give attention to it. We have to go into the darkness and be a friend to the darkness and pull them out. But when we do, we have to be careful. This can be a scary thing. I want you to think about this. As you think about the friends that you know are in the dark and you need to talk to, you ever been afraid to do so? Raise your hand if you've been afraid to do so. I want you to understand, the opposite of fear is not courage. The opposite of fear is faith. And I love the illustration of a faucet because the fear is turned on and I'm telling you, it does not have to go away in order for you to respond in faith and do what you're supposed to do. The faith just has to be turned on a little heavier to overwhelm the fear, to take over the fear. And that's what courage really is. It's faith in the face of fear doing what it's supposed to do anyway. That's courage. And we need to be people who are afraid. That's okay. But have more faith than fear and reach into the dark. Paul said, man... I didn't come to you with great, uh, I'm sorry, I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. Even the Apostle Paul admits, I was scared to death, man. My knees were knocking. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. You know what's cool? This is the magic eye. Who's heard of the magic eye? Oh, wow. Wow. That dates me, really. In the 90s, this was a big popular thing. You can stare at this, and I'll teach you later. We're not going to take time to do it, but you can stare at this in the right way, and eventually a three-dimensional picture will emerge for you. Okay? Y'all are lost, right? Y'all trying. But in the middle of all this is a big heart. A big heart will sink into the page if you do it right. But you know what? Some of you, this is just a fact. Some humans cannot do this. They can't see it. Some of you have spent all day trying to understand and see it, and you never will. But you know what's cool? Jesus says, because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven have been given to you, but not to them. See, if you understand Jesus, you are in the you're you're, you're in a very low percentile. You're a very privileged and blessed group of people to understand what you understand. God has let you in on His wonderful secret that so many in the dark don't understand and they can't see. Isn't that awesome? Why do you think He lets you know? He wants you to share with those that don't understand, those that can't see. He wants you to see for them and then go into the dark and expose so they can see too. 
It says, though seeing, they don't see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. And he says, that's why I taught them in parables. The cool thing is, you probably understand the parables and you probably understand Jesus and know Him because you were different than the rest of the crowd. When Jesus taught a parable, I used to think it was to help people understand. That's not what it was. He says it's to confuse them. In fact, His disciples didn't even get it. But they got it because they stuck around afterwards and said, what was that meaning again? <laughs> what are you talking about, man? We're lost. And then He would explain it to them. Those that are seeking will find. Those that aren't get cast by the wayside. Remember this. In Colossians chapter 4, verse 5, it says, Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. You have to be wise as you interact and be a friend of the dark. If you're not, you may get pulled into the darkness like we illustrated just a little bit ago. You have to be wise. Now, the next part of my lesson, I didn't intend to teach you guys today until yesterday. And I've added all this. Because there was a conversation I had. And it was about Christians. I was talking with some different guys and they are like, man, we got, we got one of our Christians that are dating a non-Christian. Has that ever happened in your ministry? Of course it has. I think it's probably happened in every campus ministry that's ever existed. But what was troubling to me was the mixture of reviews from the leaders of some of these groups and the uncertainty even among the leaders. And that's troubling to me. And I felt compelled to say something, even if it gets a tomato thrown at my head. Because I think this is so important. And it goes against the instruction of being wise in our interaction with outsiders. See, I want to teach you something. When you're trying to make a decision about what to do or what not to do or you know, any decision, we're good about asking, is it wrong? That's the first question. We're good about saying, is it wrong? We quickly answer it. Well, God doesn't say I can't do it, so I'll do it. See, there's a second question. Is it right? That means, am I told by God to do it? And man, even if we're mature enough to get to the second question, we answer it, there's still a third one. And that is, is it wise? The scriptural idea of that is, is it beneficial? Everything's permissible, but is it beneficial? Is it wise? If you can get through all three of those questions, I think you're better equipped to make a difficult decision. But don't minimize it to the first question or just the second. Get through all three. That's the biblical approach. There's a warning. Don't be misled, Paul says. Bad company corrupts good character. There is a reason that we have to be careful and wise in our interaction with those in the dark because it will corrupt us. Do you believe Scripture? Do you believe Jesus and His Word, His Bible, is qualified to tell you and to speak into you how to make a decision? You can't see this, but it says, how can light have fellowship with darkness? The word, fell, and this is in 2 Corinthians 6, 14, and it's in the same context where he says, come out from them and be separate. Don't be yoked together. We're going to get to that in a minute. But he says, how can it have fellowship? with? The, how can light and darkness have fellowship? That word fellowship is koinonia. And it literally means partnership. I want to challenge you. As you think about all the interactions that Jesus had with those in the dark, 
did he ever partner with them? Never partnered with them. He spent time with them. He loved them. He taught them. You never see him partnering or having fellowship until until there was repentance, godly sorrow, and those kinds of things started moving into the equation. But he never partnered with them. And as you think about your interaction with the world, those that are still in the dark, have you partnered with them? Because if you have, that's when you're at the most risk. And that's when I believe you have violated the command of God and you're entering into that word we don't like to say anymore, sin. In Deuteronomy, I want to show you how serious God was about this. This is a weird passage. I wondered for years, what in the world does this mean? But it says, and there's a lot of weird rules, okay, in the Old Testament. You think there's 10? There's over 600 laws you had to keep up with. And there were some random, seemingly random laws, okay? They weren't random. They were seemingly random, okay, to us. But he says, don't plant two kinds of seed in your vineyard. If you do, not only the crops you plant, but also the fruit of the vineyard will be defiled. Then he says, don't, pl- don't plow a field with an ox and a donkey yoked together, and don't wear clothes of wool and linen woven together. What? Check your tag. You know, because we got like 88% cotton and we got like 12% rayon and we got polyester blends. You buy a suit, you better believe it's some wool and some linen woven together. A lot of suits are. Old Testament said don't do that. Now we're not under the old law, okay? Don't think I'm some kind of weirdo. All right, but we're not under the old law. It's gone. Jesus fulfilled all that, but it means something. And everything in the Old Testament was about Jesus in some shape, form, or fashion. You understand that? Even though his name is not in some of the books, you know, or most of them in the Old Testament, it's all about him. It's all pointing to him. And ultimately, he would fulfill every bit of it. This means something, man. When he says, don't put an ox and a donkey together, I want to do this. You know, I want to video that. I think something bad would happen. I don't know, but I want to see what happens. Because because God says, don't do this, man. Don't put an ox and a donkey together and try to plow a field. Listen to this, folks. If you have partnered with the dark, with those in the dark, if you've partnered with them, yoked yourself with them, hear God speak to you, okay? This isn't me. Listen to God through the lens of I wonder, have I went too far in my interactions with the lost as I'm trying to be a friend to them? Have I really went too far? Listen to this. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. Don't partner. That's the key. Be an ambassador One that's going into the dark on a rescue mission, but don't partner with them in any way. Ephesians 5, 6 through 11 continues to say, For you were once darkness. That's what you used to be, but now you're light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness. And we've read this. 
but rather expose them. That's your job. And here's the, the famous passage. And if you're dating someone who's not a Christian, you really need to pay attention. I can't tell you how many destructive things I've seen in my short time as a campus minister. Okay, And I've been a campus minister for like 12 years. That's not very long. But in that 12-year span, I have seen more damage done to Christians, and in particular baby Christians, from their male-female interactions with each other, the opposite sex. So this is something we talk about all the time, and we try to keep it in front of our students and warn them and plead with them, man, don't date those outside of Christ, man. Reserve that for other Christians. But look at this. It says, don't be yoked together. Y'all know what the yoke is, right? It's the big thing you put around the two ox or the donkey and the ox or whatever, the two animals. It goes around their neck so they can attach the plow and they can go plow a field together. They're partnered together to accomplish a task. Nowhere, I want you to notice, because we do all kind of weird stuff to justify ourselves, okay? We say, well, yoking, dating's not yoking. Marriage is yoking. Where do you see marriage anywhere in this text? It's not there. It says don't yoke. In other words, don't partner. Don't have that koinonia, that fellowship, that partnership. Because there is no fellowship between light and dark. He says don't yoke. Don't latch on and partner to go do anything. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship does light have with darkness? And this is not the yoke, right? I can't date you. We're unequally yoked. You know, it's a misunderstanding. I've heard so many people when they first read their Bible, what is yoke? Like the egg yoke? No, it's the big thing around the necks of the animals. It's, it's like this. You can't see it, but I put this picture up because it's not a donkey and an ox. It's two oxen. But one of them's shrimpy. And one of them's big. How's that task going to go? In a circle. That's what they're going to do as a circle. They're not going to plow the field and be effective and quick and all that. No, they're going to go in a circle because this one guy is huge and he's going to be bearing all the load and he's going to be pulling it one way and the other one's not going to be doing much. He's going to get drug. So I would propose to you this. When he says don't be unequally yoked, he's not just talking about light and darkness. He, he might be talking about two Christians. One of them's a baby, one of them's seasoned. Who knows, Right? We want to make sure we're equally yoked so that we can be effective in God's kingdom. You got my stuff here? Akil's going to help me out here. You take a But I have, who likes lemonade? This is Minute Maid. Who likes frappuccinos? <laughs> Alright, who wants this one? No, it's not worth it. All right. Got your hopes up. Now, I love lemonade. Love it. I love lemonade, right? And so I'm a Christian, right? And things are good. Delicious, man. I love being a Christian. God is good. He's taking care of me. He's forgiven my sins. All is well. I want to date it. Don't drink that. I'm a germaphobe. Now, so, wait, I was supposed to shake this, wasn't I? Yeah. You can tell I'm not much of a coffee drinker. You need to that plastic Do I? Yeah. Yeah. I should have done this ahead of time. I'm so not a coffee drinker. You want to open it for me? You got nails? I don't have nails. All right. But man, 
I'm reading God's Word. I'm praying. I'm in a Bible study. I'm leading a Bible study. You know, I'm discipling someone. I'm studying the Bible with non-Christians. That's really good, man. Life is great. I'm going to date a non-Christian. That's nasty. Now, this is good by itself. This is good by itself. Together, you have to experience... That's special. Well, that's the gift that just keeps giving. Wow. That's disgusting. It doesn't go together. There are some things that just don't go. Can you think of a better couple? That's a horrible couple. But let's say, you know, but, but you know, I'm a Christian. And yeah, they're not a Christian, but they're in a Bible study. <laughs> you know, I know what the Bible says. Don't be yoked. But dating's not really yoking. There we go again. This is torture. <laughs> this is disgusting. Okay. Do you see what I'm saying though? They don't go together, but but you know, the longer I do this, the more I'm sort of used to it. And the the less weird it seems. When I first the first sip was the worst. It really was. But man, the more I do it, the more it Maybe this is a combination we should consider. I wonder. No, you should try it. See, I've gotten so accustomed to it. I'm doing it. I know. I knew in the beginning. Yeah, probably wasn't the best thing. But let me try it. And now it's just not so bad. And I just keep doing it. Keep doing it until it becomes sort of normal. Now, you look at me and you say, man, I'm glad he's doing that, not me. That's disgusting. It made some of your stomachs turn. Some of you who are really engaged in a lesson, you're tuned in with me, man. Y'all are getting sick with me, right? And you say, man, that's ridiculous. No, I would never combine those two things. But then we get into a relationship and God's word is clear. It is clear that this is made to be drunk by itself. It is clear that this doesn't go with it. It's like the total opposite kind of a drink. And yet... That seems ridiculous to us, but it sort of makes sense for me to date a non-Christian. What? No, it doesn't. It makes no sense. It makes no sense to partner with the dark. It makes all the sense in the world to be a light into the dark, to love people, and to pull them out, yes, but to be wise as we do so, and not partner with them. See, Solomon, and we're almost done. Solomon was the wisest guy in the world, right? Wisest guy ever. Maybe with exception to Jesus because he was like the incarnate of wisdom. All right, but Solomon, wisest regular guy in the world. But he goes from brilliance to stupidity if, if you read his story. And look, it says you may kiss your bride. See, that's proof that he went from brilliance to stupidity. There's no man in his right mind who needs 700 wives. 
700 folks that got something to say about his life, you know, and how he ought to be. That's insanity. It's stupidity, in fact. But he goes from brilliance, and if you read Song of Solomon, he had one love of his life. He writes, he's like, I have the eyes of a dove. You know, doves are monogamous birds. He says, I've got the eyes for only one beautiful girl. How did he go from that beautiful poetic guy to stupid 700 wives? Here's how. And this is how we'll end. It says, King Solomon, however, loved many, what? Foreign women besides Pharaoh, his daughter. Besides Pharaoh's daughter. Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, uh, all those ites. They were from nations about which the Lord has told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts from, to their gods. That was his concern. Don't intermarry with foreign women because they'll turn your hearts to their foreign gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives, a royal birth. Wow, that stuff's coming back. Yeah, <laughs> All right. <laughs> and 300 concubines. He is stupid. And his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart, sure enough, after other gods. And his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord, his God, as the heart of his father David had been. He followed. See, he changed his follow. He was following God, wisest guy in the world, but then he started following these foreign women, these foreign gods. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech. Boy, that was a detestable god, man. He did some vile things, human sacrifices and all. And so Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely. Why? Because he partnered with folks he had no business partnering with. You can justify it. Some of you have been. If you're in the middle of it and I'm talking to you about it, the first reaction, the knee-jerk reaction is let me get defensive, let me justify my position. I would just ask you to humbly go back and think. Go back and get quiet before God. Get quiet before His Word and hear what He's saying. And this is the last scripture. And remember this, folks. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builder builds in vain. We need to build and let the Lord build our relationships into the dark. Because unless He's doing it, it's in vain. You might, and I would say this, my last word, you might convert that guy. You might be a successful missionary dater. A totally unbiblical concept. Totally against the will of God. But you might be successful in converting that person. Praise God if that happens. But you know what? The problem didn't just go away because he became a Christian or because she became a Christian. The problem was your heart in disobedience to the Word of God from the jump. Just because that circumstance changed doesn't mean the heart problem went away. And guess what? It's going to crop up in another way. God's going to give you some clear instruction, but you're going to come up with your own justifying reasons for doing it other, another way, and you're going to do it in some other facet of life. It's just going to keep happening over and over and over again. The issue is an issue of the heart. Will I do it God's way or do I want to do it my way? Will I let Him build or am I going to take the reins and am I going to build? Go out into the dark, man. Make friends, but be wise in how you do it. 
and go rescue people from the dark and bring them into the light. Amen? Amen. You're dismissed.